0: Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a new podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the USF College of
1: Public Health and director of the Activist Lab. Hello and welcome to Advocation Change It Up, the podcast series of the University of South Florida College of Public Health Activist Lab. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined by one of our student advisory board members, Rolando Trejos. So how are you, Rolando? Hi, Dr. Litter. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. That's great. And we also have exciting news for Rolando. He will be my graduate assistant in the Activist Lab starting in the fall. So we've been away for a while due to the pandemic, but we're very excited to be back and stronger than ever. The Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And to find out more about us, you can just Google us at USF.com college of public health activist lab and you will see all the educational programs we do our boot camps our seminars our research our advocacy and we really work to make sure students have good experiences in advocacy in the community state and national level this podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates whose work has led to great improvements in public health We'll be talking in each podcast with a guest on a particular public health issue, and we're gonna end each podcast by asking how we as the community can advocate for change. So without further ado, let's talk with our advocation guest, Dr. Jerome Gallia. Dr. Gallia is an assistant professor in the USF School of Social Work and has an appointment as well here in the College of Public Health. He specializes in the integration of depression care with HIV prevention and care services, especially low-intensity mental health interventions done by lay people. Much of his research was conducted in Lima, Peru, among men who have sex with men and transgender women. So as you've just heard, there are so many topics there that would be of so much interest to public health students and the community, we can't wait to get started. So hello, Dr. Gallia.
0: Hi, hi, it's so good to talk to you
1: and thank you for being here. You know, you recently gave an excellent Activist Lab Find Your Voice seminar on this topic that listeners can find on our website, but I want to delve deeper today. Let's talk about depression, anxiety, and how these ailments affect the general population and particularly how they affect sexual minority groups.
0: Sure, sure. That's such an important topic, and Um, I'm so excited to be here and to talk about it. You know, you have mentioned also uh, the pandemic and uh, it's no secret that mental health issues have really been uh, brought to the forefront by the pandemic and have been exacerbated by the pandemic due to things like social isolation, economic deprivation and and things of that nature. But to, um, to start off, Um, even without the pandemic, you know, mental health problems worldwide are starting to surpass some chronic diseases like uh, heart disease Mm -hmm. and other sorts of disorders, um, diabetes. And it's expected that in the next 10 years or so, mental health issues, and when I say mental health issues, I include common things like Depression and anxiety, but I would also include things like substance use disorders, eating disorders, uh, and so forth. They will outstrip all of those other NCDs. So it's really a, a growing, growing problem globally. Um, and 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 uh, we we figured that probably about uh, you know twenty percent of the population at any given time is dealing with some sort of you know, mental disorder amongst all the mental disorders, but very few actually receive care, even in the United States, but even less so in developing countries like Peru.
1: Right. And isn't it also true that when we think about depression and anxiety, um, we think about adults, but isn't it happening more often now in children and adolescents? Well,
0: that's right. Um, I think that uh, what we're is a better recognition um, of uh, depression anxiety and we choose I talk a lot about depression anxiety because amongst the mental disorders most of them are in the area of, um, of mood depression mm-hmm. um, anxiety specifically so we're both being able to detect and you know and recognize more often but also you're quite right I mean there are things um, and again I, I will bring up Covid, because I've been working a lot of with my own patients um, right now, especially with young people, and the social isolation has exacerbated
1: absolutely um,
0: the those those feelings. So uh, you're you're right on point uh, in, in that regard.
1: Mm-hmm. And how about this depression and anxiety among sexual minority groups? Is it more prevalent? Is it different?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, it's more prevalent um, and it's more prevalent due to a number of factors Um, but I keep coming back to if I sound a little bit like a a broken record around social isolation um, it's because it's so we know that as you know the species our species are a social species and we need to interact with other people and we need to interact with other people like us And for sexual minorities that um, or for people that um, don't conform to kind of archetypal, you know, uh, modalities of heterosexual normativities Mm -hmm. um, or in spaces where they can be themselves, Mm -hmm. either through their gender identity or sexual identity and have to kind of live a double life that creates lots of internal tension. And that comes out as depression and anxiety oftentimes. And so yes, um, now you you layer onto that stigma, you mm-hmm. lay on the layer onto that other cultural issues. Um, in some cultures, for example, um, you mentioned that I do a lot of work in Peru. Um, in Latino cultures, the, the the kind of machista stereotypes of men, you know, right. um, uh, uh, that kind of machista very masculine stereotype can make coming out uh, for say men. Uh, gay men even more difficult because it goes against everything that they've ever seen around them it's not is one example but the many cultures share that that characteristic yeah
2: right great rolando do you have any questions yes um dr Hi, rolando. i would like to thank you again for your time and for your expertise in this topic one of the questions that come to my mind is. Um, in terms of the interventions that you're doing in Peru, how do you think that they are different from the interventions that you can do or that are required here in the us do you think that mm-hmm. there's more things or less things are are different
0: it's such it's such a great question and it's one that I've been really studying and in, intensively as of late um, you know the good news is 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 that depression and anxiety, um, when you look cross-culturally, and there have been many anthropological studies done on depression, anxiety, and how it appears in different cultures, um, the good news is, is, is that they're usually defined or perceived or characterized in roughly similar ways, whether you're talking about um, Peru, the United States, uh, the country of Jordan or Ethiopia— Many of the same characteristics, many of depression anxiety show up, characterized, manifest in very similar ways. They may be described a little bit differently and using different terms. Um, it may be feeling blue in the United States or, or you know, just right out, you know, being depressed um, in, in Peru. But they show up in different ways. And that means that um, the interventions we use can roughly be the same. Um, so there are core elements of, of interventions to treat depression or anxiety that are roughly the same um, and that can be used across cultures. And they really only need to be adapted um, in the way that they're delivered and how they look so that they, they have a good cultural fit. So some examples we may use in Peru um, to help treat depression may, may include the same core components. But they may just, you know, look a little different so that they make sense to Peruvians, and we would change them here. But we're using uh, some of the interventions that I've used in Peru here in Tampa Mm
3: -hmm.
0: um, with great success. So um, that's that's the good news, and that's what makes them very scalable. That means we don't need hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different interventions. We can stick with them you know, a a group of interventions that we know are evidence-based, and then we can kind of change their kind of outer shell so they're packaged a little differently. Mm -hmm.
1: One of the things that really uh, impressed me in your talk was your discussion of low-intensity mental health interventions. Could you talk a little bit about that so the audience knows what those are?
0: Sure, sure. Low-intensity interventions, well, these refer to interventions um, that, um, cost less to deliver because they can be um, taught to people who have not received special training in mental health. So they're not licensed clinical social workers or psychiatric nurses or psychiatrists. It's not to say that those more skilled professions aren't needed or um, or can just be done away with. What it means is, is that um, many um, people can do, depending on the level of their depression, and I I can get back to this in more detail later if you like, Uh but if if many, many people, if you were to measure their level, their intensity of distress using uh, certain scales that we can apply, you know, questionnaires, you will find that many, many people um, fall into the category of depression, say, for example, more on the low to moderate level and not the severe level. You know, suicide is a very you know, obvious, serious uh, problem. But in among people who have depression, suicide is only a very, very small fraction, less than 1% of um, the cases. Really, most people, when you score them using these instruments for depression, they fall under the mild to moderate. Mm-hmm. These are exactly the types of level of depression that can be treated by low intensity interventions. That is, these interventions delivered by non-specialists. Now, what kinds of interventions might look like that? They could be group interventions. They could be one-on-one interventions. Mm-hmm. They could be self-guided interventions that maybe are delivered by a chatbot or by a recording you might listen to. Maybe you've even seen some of these interventions that are becoming popularized, um, you know, on the Internet these right. days. Right, social media, um, you can find some. Yeah, in right. social media, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so my, my interest is to really um, focus on that area. Why? Because in the, in the short, and I would even say medium and long term, we're never going to be able to find, train, and teach enough psychiatrists to be able to reach everybody. Do you know? In, do you know? In most a, countries, very most, true. most middle and, middle-income countries, there's less than one psychiatrist per hundred thousand people. It's just—it's just not feasible. Impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah, it's and impossible to handle. The, yeah, yeah, even within the U.S. Um, I mean, this is a whole other story uh, that I, we don't have time probably to get into, but so many people, millions and millions of people, don't have health insurance, mm-hmm. don't have access to care. Absolutely. Um, so these low-intensity inventions really fit a niche where you can scale help to large populations. Um, and then what you do is for people who need specialized resources, well, then you connect them to those resources.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Dr. Gallia, I was thinking on that terms. What can we do? What are the next steps then in terms of introducing this kind of low-intensity um, interventions and creating um, community-based interventions in which we see the community empower itself to help mm-hmm. and produce um, the response to help their community strive?
0: Yeah, I love that you use the word empower because that uh, really what we're talking about here. This is really a social justice issue for me. Yes. Um, you know, if I were to ask you, let's say you're, you're, you know, chopping an onion and you slip and you cut your finger. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's a cut where, you know, you didn't severely cut your finger, but, you know, you drew a little bit of blood. My guess is the first thing you would do is wash that cut and, you know, clean right. it, maybe put some alcohol on it. Uhhuh. Um, and put a Band-Aid on it
3: uh-huh. until
0: it heals. And you would check it. You might change that Band-Aid. My guess is you would not call 911. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you would not immediately rush to your doctor.
1: No. Right? Not now, I'm anyway. Sure. Not, not now. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Well, exactly right now. So my point is I can give you lots of examples for non-mental health issues for which people are empowered
3: to, mm-hmm.
0: to treat themselves, and they know when to seek professional help. Um, I bet even, let's escalate it. Let's say, I mean, let's put COVID aside for right now. Let's say you have a headache. Mm -hmm. You might take, you know, a couple tablets of, you know, uh, a pain reliever Mm -hmm. to help that headache. And if, you know, you get a fever and it lasts for a couple of days, well then, okay, I need to seek help. You have been empowered to treat common medical issues on your own.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, and maybe those around you would help you. Um, right. In the same way, I still don't see that happening in mental health. What I see in happening in mental health is people um, really quite unnecessarily suffer, right? Mm-hmm. Suffer alone, mm-hmm. silent, because it seems like the only option is to call nine one one or see a psychiatrist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: My That's argument true. is is that there's there's an yeah. equivalent kind of first aid. In fact, there's a whole Um Online program called Psychological First Aid, which mm-hmm. is under the umbrella of low intensity interventions, that I really think that many community organizations could be teaching people to deliver to other people like them, peers, peer to peer. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone you know um, suddenly you know read a book and become a psychiatrist any more than I'm saying that you should perform surgery on yourself. That's right. not what I'm saying. Right. But I'm just saying is, is that, you know, a lot of the things that happen in day-to-day life are kind of nicks and cuts that mm-hmm. um, that we can learn how to treat. And there are evidence-based ways. You know, using a Band-Aid and cleaning the store is evidence-based. We know this right. is better than leaving it yeah. unwashed and uncovered, right? Sure. There's the same thing with mental health. And that's my argument. So, so what I would say and what I'm trying to really do is to help organizations um, continue with their specialized services if they're delivering them, but also consider setting up programs to train um, peer uh, workers
3: mm-hmm.
0: to deliver these low-intensity interventions exactly the way we're doing in Peru, exactly the way we're doing in Mexico. And the way we've demonstrated we can do um, here at USF um, at, the, at a clinic that um, I volunteer at. And so that's the sort of thing, to, to really pick up these interventions that are freely distributed um, with great in- intervention guides and be able to train oh. and, and supervise and, you know, of course, help people deliver these interventions with fidelity. But to show them that you really can do it. Yeah. And it's, it's not rocket science. Either, <laughs> and guess what? It's affordable, and people get better. They really do get better.
1: I mean, this could be guess, like a game changer, right, for the whole field if more and more groups and people uh, adopted these interventions. I, that's
0: that's exactly how I feel, and and you know what's what's interesting about this is, is that in low in, low and middle income countries that don't have strong um, you know, health delivery infrastructure. Uh-huh. This is the only way they can be said, man. Well, yeah. And it's not just in mental health. We're also training uh, community health workers how to deliver <clears
3: throat>,
0: tuberculosis treatment, how to deliver sure. HIV testing and treatment. Mm-hmm. How We've seen this over and over in more of the biomedical sciences, but we don't see it in mental health. And yet right. it's so obvious.
1: And why do you think mental health still has this stigma in 2020? I mean, Uh, you know, (laughs) we've been through so many improvements in psychiatry and psychology Mm -hmm. and awareness, and still it seems, like you say, people suffer in silence. Yeah. And I think what happens, and you can correct me, Dr. Golly, if I'm wrong, but When you suffer in silence for a long period of time, it just festers and festers and festers to becoming, Mm -hmm. you know, perhaps a very dangerous problem for you. And if we had these low-intensity interventions used early on, you know, you may get better. And it it won't advance to a state that can be quite damaging.
0: You're absolutely right. So let me answer your – I'll take a stab at answering the question (laughs) you asked me. You know why? Why do I? You know why do I think mental health is like that? Well, let me let me just kind of backtrack. Let's say you decide to not wash that cut on your finger when you're chopping the onion. Right. This has never happened to me. Right. That's why I use this example. <laughs> okay. Let's let's say you don't, and let's say it gets infected, mm-hmm. and eventually it's it's clear that it's painful, it's swollen, and you go and see your doctor,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and your doctor. Um, will treat the infection but is unlikely to say this, that that infection reflects on you as a person and your character and reflects some internal weakness. Right. But the likely to say is that, well, you know, it's an infection that got, a, got out of hand. You yeah. Know? What happens with mental health is that for some reason we seem to equate mental health issues, depression especially, and anxiety mm-hmm. as a character flaw. Mm-hmm. We judge the person as being too weak to just get over it. Right. Just kind of suck up
1: mm-hmm. and
0: get over it, and it becomes an issue of willpower. It becomes an issue, uh, not of, um, you know, uh, w- not of the depression and the and the and that actually emerging. There's some emerging biological factors with um, depression, including things like inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting mm-hmm. research coming out about how inflammation, um, can also like, when I mean inflammation, I mean, uh, you know, at the, um, molecular level. Right. Can affect, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: our immune or system. Or your immune system. Can,
1: yeah, definitely. Exactly. It mm-hmm. can,
0: can be expressed as depression. No, what happens is, is that there's a huge, it ties back to stigma and it ties back to how, for many reasons, we view mental health issues as just an issue of personal fortitude mm-hmm. and not as um, a biological process worthy, in its own right, of care. Um, and I'll be the first to admit that the biological mechanisms that regulate most uh, many mental health problems are not well understood.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and even I can't now. tell you, yeah. Even now, mm-hmm. I can't tell you that there's a test. A blood test you can take to say, "Oh, yeah, you've got depression." In the same way that I Mm -hmm. might check for white blood cells, Um, I can't even tell you right now um, that—or let me flip that and say, I can tell you that even the medications we use to treat depression, we still don't entirely understand how they work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's no—you know—it's still—it's hard to believe. um, But we—I still can't tell you. In fact, I can—I can show you research it shows that a lot of times talk therapy does just as well as a medication for treating certain types of depression or certain types of mental illness. So I think, I think it's because of that. Um, Uh and that is why there's been a push to help characterize mental health morbidity in the same way as we characterize, um, uh, you know, many, uh, You know, physical morbidity. I can also give you examples. You know, people suffer from IBS. There's no blood test that tells you if you have IBS. Mm -hmm. But nobody says to the patient, nah, no, you'll just get over it. You're not really (laughs) feeling that way. Cheer up. You know, you're bloated (laughs) and gas and inability to eat. That'll just disappear on its own. I mean, really?
1: And it seems so... Strange to me that in 2020, that prevailing attitude about mental health still persists. Yeah, uh, 8, yeah,
0: 8, 8, I 8. agree, I agree. I mean, it's changing.
1: Yes, it has gotten better, little. I think. But, you um, little know, by little. we need to really get a better handle on it, I think, though, because, you know, for children, for example, the second leading cause of death for very, very young children now is suicide, which is Incredible. very hard to believe. Yeah right? Yeah. For, mm-hmm. for, for as, as young as 10 years old. So I think mm-hmm. it's something we definitely need to get a handle on. And these low intensity interventions make so much sense. Sure. Because like you said, not everybody has access to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and really, you know, for many of these uh, situations, a lay person can help you through it. Or even as you said, you can help yourself. Through it. Right. So.
3: Right.
0: Ex- exactly. So the idea here is to break down the model of all or none,
3: mm-hmm. and say,
0: "Well, look at there's different intensities of depression mm-hmm. and anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, the two biggest ones. There are different preferences. Some people prefer to talk to other people like them and don't want to go." To right. a doctor, right? Um, some, you know. So we need to start matching. There's a talk about precision medicine,
3: mm-hmm.
0: really mm-hmm. trying to tailor things to the, um, to the person, to the client, to the mm-hmm. person, the patient. We should be doing the same things with mental health, and right. especially for sexual and gender minorities who already are facing so many sure. barriers to care. The last thing we want to do is slap up a barrier in mental health. Um, and that just is going to turn that person away. There's so many people I've talked to that say, you know what, I've been struggling with this for so long, but the first, you know, professional I went to said, you know, asked me, well, you know, have you ever tried to have sex with somebody of, of the opposite gender or opposite sex? You know, have you ever, you know, really started to question what I already knew was me? And it's just a total, Turn oh, off. You don't you know you don't go to a doctor again and say well you know <laughs> yeah. have you really considered that's not a cut but that's
1: right something else? That's well, something, well, no. in you know? yeah, something in your imagination Yeah, something um, in your imagination
0: So and different so I, I bring that up because um, the other issue with sexual and gender minorities and depression uh, that is worth mentioning. Um, but this is true for everybody, but I can give very specific examples mm-hmm. um, for how this makes things worse for SGM mm-hmm. populations is that it makes everything else worse. Mm-hmm. So depression makes the outcome, name a disease, and I can likely find evidence to show how depression makes the outcome of that disease yes. worse. Yes. So it could be HIV. Mm-hmm. It could be tuberculosis. could be diabetes. Uh, you know, right. um, Everything, cancer, it just makes everything worse. So it makes sense to be really uh, integrating depression care activities wherever other diseases are being managed.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know physicians are now asking patients a little bit more often about their mental health. You know, when you go Mm -hmm. to a physician, you fill out a form. And I think, so I think they're slowly getting to this, but I don't remember any physician really talking to me about it at any length, you know, when I did go in for the visit. So yeah. um even if even yeah. if you answer all the questions like you're perfectly fine, you're not depressed, you have no anxiety. Right. Um I don't remember any any conversation right. really about yeah. it. You know I, I
0: agree. I think things are changing. Mm-hmm. Um and um I I feel like those changes though are happening more in university settings, um, Mm. that, you know, are, you know, and maybe less so when you trickle down to the individual Mm -hmm. providers, private Mm private providers. But I also think that among, um, physicians, it's no secret that, um, asking about mental health can be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because it feels like even to medical professionals. And I don't want to generalize, But I will. (laughs) Even the medical professionals, many will tell you, well, I'm not a psychiatrist.
3: Right. I can't answer that. Why should
0: I be? I can't can't answer that. But Mm in fact, most people um, with depression, anxiety also have somatic or or bodily complaints. Yes. That show up as insomnia, uh, body pain, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, and things of that nature. And that's what leads them to going to the doctor in the Mm -hmm. first place.
1: In the first place. And it could be totally missed.
0: Right. And it could be totally yeah. missed. Um, and then when you layer on sexual and gender minorities, well, they don't want to ask, a, you know, it seems like, well, maybe it's too private to ask about those mm. issues mm. in a clinical setting. And I argue that until we start normalizing these questions, mm-hmm. saying, well, no, actually, this is part of treating my patient, right. client, treating the as patient. a whole
1: person.
0: A whole person, right. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe, I mean, I know that's changing in some curricula for medical school, mm-hmm. um, how does. that carries out. Um, but, hey, P.S., guess who else have really high burden of untreated mental health issues?
1: Physicians. <laughs> Physicians. Responders. <laughs> they're the worst stigma. patients.
0: <laughs> they're the worst patients, but they're also among the most stigmatized when it
1: comes to seeking help. Absolutely.
3: It's
0: supposed you to be know? Dr. Who Hill wants-
1: thyself, right? <laughs>
0: Exactly. Yeah. And who wants okay. to, you know, I mean, I know there have been a couple of recent cases in the media um, about physicians who have taken their lives um, yes. because of the stress and anxiety um, of COVID. And I just think oh, how yeah. sad yeah. and how unnecessary and how alone that person or p- those people may have, must have felt
3: mm-hmm.
0: when they couldn't even turn to people in their own profession right. for help, for fear right. of for being...
1: Well, or 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 for looking weak, right? Because again, mm-hmm. we've put this whole mental health, which is part of health, right? I mean, when we mm-hmm. learn, and and Rolando can can talk about this. When you learn about public health, you learn that it's not just physical health, correct? It's right. mental health, emotional health, spiritual health. It's all those
2: areas. But you had a Well-being. question, yeah. of course. Yeah, Dr. Gallia, I was just. Yeah. Questioning myself as I have been listening in your talk and also um, reading some of uh, of the material that you have developed during the years, I was wondering how do you envision the future of the interventions, mental health interventions in a specific um, for um, individuals that have intersecting identities, individuals that are gay and also have. Um, a, Comorbidities of behavioral health disorders, that could be depression and anxiety, that could be depression and HIV, that could be depression and tuberculosis. How do you envision the future of those interventions for those specific individuals?
0: Yeah, um, so really, really, really astute question um, here. I'll tell you how I don't envision it. I don't envision the development of multiple what i call boutique interventions Mm -hmm. each designed to treat a specific thing what i envision are um, the proliferation and the expansion and the diffusion of these low intensity interventions and and the reason why um, is not because i don't think all of those uh, things that you mentioned are um you know it's not that i don't think they're important of course i do or think that they exist but that the other aspect of these low-intensity interventions is that they're trans-diagnostic. That means that they've been developed to treat a number of um, different issues under the same intervention. Um, and so, what I am, but my, but I have to keep returning back to my main point. My main point is, is that right now, it's basically either you get nothing, or you get you know the highest level of Mm -hmm, care we have to offer mm -hmm, Um, what i'm suggesting is that some of these low intensity trans diagnostic um, interventions can easily be adapted and can accommodate a wide range of people um you know uh, you know you guys if if, if we were sitting together you might uh, reach over and and slap me because i'm going to go back (laughs) to my my onion cutting but we don't have you know A thousand different types of band aids. I mean, basically, there's a few kinds of band aids that pretty much do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have, if you got a hangnail, put a band aid on it. You got a little burn, put a band aid on it. You got, you know, whatever. You know, there are things that band aids don't work for, but I'm saying that, you know, the nice thing about these interventions is that um, we're using them quite effectively with transgendered women, with adolescents, with pregnant adolescents. Mm-hmm. With uh, children um, who have experienced trauma, mm-hmm.
3: um,
0: we are using these with adults with grieving. We're using these with gay men. We're using—I mean—they're—they're they're really quite applicable. Always, and I just want to stress this because um, because it's necessary. Always in the context of knowing when they're not appropriate to you. Right. When really this person does need to see somebody with more skills in their toolbox.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, that has you know, to be an always, option. Yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'm not saying that that medication is always inappropriate. Of course oh, not. No, no. They can of course be course extremely not. beneficial. Right. Um, in certain cases,
1: or together. That's a nice thing Working about these together. interventions. together. Complementary. Yeah. yeah.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. In fact, many of my own patients, um, do both, you know, they yeah. see a psychiatrist for medication management and then they come see me because, because the psychiatrist says, Hey, my psychiatrist would be very useful to also be talking to somebody, you know, regularly as I develop strategies to, um, dealing with life. Hey, look at, we're not going to change what life throws at us for the most part. No. Although, Fingers crossed there's a lot of very interesting things happening in this country that make me more hopeful than not. Yes. That the things that are causing a lot of the stress and anxiety um, might uh, be, you know, uh, addressed in policy in the coming years. But what we can do is change how um, how we react to them and right. deal
1: with them. Right. Yeah. So in our last few minutes, uh, Dr. Galia, sure. could you tell us, you know, we always end the podcast by asking what can we do as a community to advocate for change? How can we help you? How can the community move forward with these, the whole concept of depression, you know, not being so stigmatized and also these low intensity interventions?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, we're doing it right now and I hope, um, your listeners will be encouraged um, to do so, but educate yourself,
3: mm-hmm. educate Definitely. yourself like
0: anything else. Education, I believe is the first step and I call it psychoeducation. So specifically, mm-hmm. you know, educate yourself on the signs and symptoms of common, um, mental disorders. Again, because depression, anxiety are, you know, really are the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. Look at the common, um, Com- the way it commonly presents and you'll start to see things um, around you or maybe even things you've experienced yourself um, and start to be able to label it. If we can't identify it, you can't label it, then it may as well not exist right. because then it just becomes something that floats around in our heads
3: mm-hmm. Then
0: um, I would say if you then a next step would be get involved. you know get mm-hmm. involved. By um, talking, you know, involvement can be as simple as saying to somebody, um, "Hey, sounds, seems like you're having a hard time," and not shying away from asking things. Yes. Um, like you know, are, you know, can I be there? Can I listen? It's as simple as that to begin with, right. and not being afraid, especially. And this is a, a myth I wanted to mention and dispel. Asking somebody if they um, are thinking of harming themselves. Does not encourage a person to harm themselves.
1: That's true. In fact,
0: um, it, it helps them talk about it. I mean, there's, I can't, I, I will send you
1: the research. So there's, no, <laughs> well, link, sure there's the re- no link between The that. listeners would love that, absolutely, because that gets discussed a lot. Maybe I shouldn't say that because it'll make them, but there's never any evidence yeah, I don't, that that's true. Uh,
0: yeah. Right. I, I don't want <laughs> put to that, put that idea in their head. Now, exactly. either the idea is there or it's not. That's, right. So that's I would, right. I would say, then. Then, if you want, if you want to get involved, there are free online courses for psychological first aid. In fact, I just took one a couple of weeks ago to see how it was a, a different one. Okay. Um, and it was very, very interesting. It's free to do. Anyone can do it. It was a six hour, super interesting online course. And now I feel it was specifically for responding to people um, during disaster, uh, natural disasters. The particular one. Oh, I took That's
1: great advice. Yes, um, psychological are, first aid Okay.
0: Yeah, it's, it's called uh, P-S-A And it's free And anyone can do it So I would say education and then training But then also you can ramp that up as far as you want There are organizations including Bum 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 I'll announce it free publicly <laughs> here But I'm happy to say Yay. That along with um, Colleagues uh, Dr. Simmons And Melissa Thompson The School of Social Work we are launching the USF Access Access Lab, the Global Health Global Mental Health Access Lab, which um, is really dedicated to scaling these low-intensity interventions. Oh,
1: that's and, fantastic. And uh, soon
0: we'll be looking for interest for students that want to get involved as well. And so there's going to be more and more ways to get involved. But even within organizations, you can volunteer. So I would really say, I mean that's, those are the immediate steps anyone can do. Anything from a few minutes to, you know, write out volunteering.
1: Right. Well, listen, yeah. your information has just been so great today. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ghalia. I Galea. am so pleased to have been invited. I can't oh, 100%. I, hopefully you can hear
0: the enthusiasm I have. I can talk about this for hours.
1: So. <laughs> well, we're so going to bring you back because I'm sure the listeners are going to want to hear more. So I would love to. I would love to. Maybe we can bring in another I can bring another guest with me. There you go. We're getting very good with this technology now, so we should be able to handle that. Okay. So thank you on behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, my co-host Rolando and our wonderful guest Dr. Galia. We thank all of you for joining us and hey, keep listening. We'll have new segments coming soon. We're very proud to announce that soon we'll be launching our series on racism, health and life. We will have several episodes on this topic and how we can advocate for real change. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on how we're doing, so please email us at cophactivistlab at usf.edu. So until next time, this is Dr. Karen Liller. Remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. Keep listening and join Advocation Change It Up. Tell your friends and family. We're on all media, Apple, Spotify, and more. So thank you again, and hey, when it's safe to be out and about, come see us in the Activist Lab.